on today's episode, we're going to talk about Leonardo Cienciuli and Marie Robards. You're listening to Bad in the Boondocks, baby. Hey, and welcome to Bad in the Boondocks. As always, I am one of your hosts, Stan. And I'm Drew. How's it going, everybody? Well, it's been quite a hot minute since we've been here. Yeah, I know it has. Hope y'all missed us. Mainly because we've been to the lake every week doing crap. Like, not actually enjoying ourselves. Like, doing stuff for, like, the pool and stuff for everybody else, you know? Yeah, pretty much doing the cleanup work and everything so everyone else can enjoy. Basically, the bullshit that, that no one else is gonna do, but yeah, enjoys the, what do you call it, the result of what we do. It's usually how it turns out. I hope everyone is still safe and secure with the virus. Yeah. It's very interesting seeing some of the face masks and gloves that people are wearing. Well, you remember that guy that was in Walmart the other day. We went in there. Well, his face mask broke, and I didn't really want to look stupid wearing mine, so I took mine off. And um, there's this guy hacking up with a freaking cough, and there's this other dude that was in this little hover-around thing coming in through the aisle. And the white guy starts coughing all over him. And he did a 360 in the I'm telling you he did. He backed that shit right on out of there. And he was like, uh. But that man was coughing because he had no teeth. and He was was probably an 80-year-old smoker. Yeah, but the thing is, don't cough around these times. Oh, you better hold it in. Mm Mm-mm. You were coughing quite a bit this morning. <laughs> I know that I was, but I'm also around here, and I'm not out in public. If I'm out in public, I'm going to hold it. Seemed like I had... Oh, yes. To Miss Kimberly. I'm going to have to tell y'all, she's about she's a great freaking fan. But anyway, you were correct, because I feel like this needs to be explained. You were correct when you were messaging asking where the hell is our live at we did do a live yes we did that was fucked up but what happened was we were very depressed we were on there for about mm, 35 minutes and it was like really nobody well actually there was nobody from the the podcast podcast on there and had some people from my church come by you know pop in (laughs) And the only people was... Family from North Carolina pop in. I'm like, how do they even know? Jen and Cam, they were on there. Yeah. From our True Crime podcast. And come to find out, I did not do a live on Bad and the Boondocks' account. You did Stanley Williams' account. I did my personal account. On straight onto the page, dude. Yes. Where everybody can see it. 
So that had to be taken down. We will do another one sometime. Yeah, and we kind of felt shame. that uh, And bummed. <laughs> and mad. Very bummed, because I thought that was a pretty damn good live. It was. But it was very lonely. <laughs> and I'm like, was. I was people like, said they wanted us to do this, I was and nobody showing up. I was expecting at least 100 people showing up. And here we are. I'm like asking him, are we even live right now because nobody is on there and we and we saw everybody on the bad and the boonocks page that were online online and i'm like why are they not joining exactly i was like those are some shady and all together we only had 18 and i'm like that can't be right because there was like 50 people from the bad and boonocks page online probably just waiting i know probably on that i know anyway so we're sorry our little Screw up there. We'll have to come up with another date. Yes. <laughs> that was messed up, man. Dang. So, I wish that. They, <laughs> I wish they went to the lake next weekend because we could do it, you know, next weekend. But I don't know if they're going to the lake to give us enough time to... Because they are some aggravating people. I ain't going to lie to you. This family. Good God. Well, all right. So, do you want to start off with a story? I will start off with a story. Then let's do it. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, that is disgusting. That, <laughs> and you just swallowed that snot. I didn't. No, you swallowed that snot. I'm clearing my throat. And you swallowed that snot. I'm clear. Shut up. It should be. Like, you don't do that. I don't want to hear you say your throat is dry. Like, because you don't do that. Not on air. Oh, whatever. Well, I got to clear it before I read, duh. I hope your phone makes it through this. Oh, I do. I don't know what's wrong with it. I know what's wrong with it. It's got run over by a lawnmower. It's gotten uh, burnt by the engine of the lawnmower. Yeah, that's true. I dropped it the other day on the engine. Um, And then this part, I'm not sure what happens. It's been dropped in the lake a few times. Okay, well, I'm going to talk. (laughs) Moving on. Moving on. I'm going to talk about... Leonardo Cianciulli. It is important to know that Leonardo Cianciulli. You've got a hair out the side of your mouth. I'm not sure. I don't know where the hair came from. Is it like. It was long. He's a fiber. No, it looked like a hair. Are you serious? Growing out your lips. But go ahead. (laughs) Is it cold? It's gone. But I could not look at you the whole time. It is important to know that Leonardo Cianciulli was fiercely protective of her children. After losing 13 of her 17 children before the age of 10, it's no wonder that the four children who remained were treated. Wait, I know what you're going to say with the utmost care. She didn't lose the children while she was before the age of 10. Okay. The children died before they were the age of 10. Because I was going to call you bullshit. It's very confusing. (laughs) (laughs) So before they turned 10. Yeah. So when police came calling, accusing her son, Giuseppe, of murdering three local spinster women, Cianciulli immediately confessed to the crimes she had worked so hard to conceal from authorities. In fact, not only did Cianciulli confess to the murders, but she described in great detail their aftermath, including bullying the bodies, baking them with the blood, and turning the fat into soap. Now, that is natural. That is creative. That is, 
I'm doubt it was organic though, because the person probably it's did be not expensive. eat organic. It's got to be expensive. Oh, you charge a good penny for that. Too expensive for me to buy. Wonder what scent she would yes, put in there. Yes, I was. I was just about to ask that. What scent? All of which were shared so generously with her neighbors during afternoon tea. Leonardo Sincerely was not always a monster, though her adolescent life had set her up to be. Before even reaching adulthood, she had attempted suicide twice, then married a registr a red Whoa. Registr a redneck a registry <laughs> office clerk who her parents strongly disapproved of as they'd have more respect set up in mind. She sincerely claimed that upon her marriage, her mother cursed her, dooming her to a life of misery furthermore, forevermore. Though there was, of course, no proof a curse doesn't seem that unlikely when one looks at Sincerely's life after her marriage. A few years into her marriage, Sincerely was imprisoned for fraud, and three years later, her home was destroyed by an earthquake. Mm. She got pregnant 17 times but lost 13 of the children, either miscarriage or mm. illness in their youth. I don't know um, about all that. Okay, I don't know. Seems she a little suspicious. I know it does. A little suspicious. She eventually went to see a fortune teller. A if y'all heard him go, I don't know what he was doing. What do you mean? You said, did I really? Yes. <laughs> I don't know what you were doing. Um, a traveling Romani woman who did nothing to quell her fears of a curse. Quote, in your right hand I see prison. End quote. The fortune teller told her, in your left hand, a criminal asylum. Laboring under the curse, she felt was put on her by her mother in the Romany fortune teller's prediction, Leonardo Sincerely became highly superstitious. When her son, Giuseppe, told her in late 1939 that he was going to join the Italian army, Sincerely turned um, to the one thing that she believed would keep her son safe, human sacrifice. She chose her candidate well, a local spinster woman who thought she who thought um, no one would miss, named Faustina Setti, inviting Setti over under the guess of setting her up with a husband. Sincerely had her write letters to her family members, telling them that she would be visiting the man abroad. Then she subdued Setti with drugged wine and murdering her with an axe. That's pretty hardcore for a woman. Was she what, a little so butch looking? What, so like, I'm not women saying they can't, can't kill I didn't equally say they the men? couldn't, but for a woman, that's brazen. Okay. Mm -hmm. From there, she cut Seti into nine pieces and gathered her blood into a basin. In her official statement upon her arrest, she described the things she did to the body next. Quote, I threw the pieces into a pot, added seven kilos of Caustic, caustic soda, 
which I have bought to make soap, and stirred the mixture until the pieces dissolved into a thick, dark mush that I poured into several buckets and emptied into a nearby septic tank. As for the blood into the basin, I waited until it had coagulated. Is that right? Coagulated? Coagulated. Dried it into the oven, ground it, and mixed it into flour, sugar, chocolate, milk, and eggs, as well as a bit of margarine. Kneading all the ingredients together, I made lots of crunchy tea cakes and served them to the ladies who came to visit, though Giuseppe and I also ate them. End quote. <laughs> According to some, Cienciuli also took Seti's life savings, which she had received as payment for setting Seti up with a husband. But she didn't do it. I know she didn't. So she should have refunded. But she took it first. While one would think a single sacrifice would have been sufficient to prevent her son's imminent demise, Leonardo Cienciuli didn't seem um, to be able to stop at one. Soon after Seti's murder, Cienciuli found another victim, another local familyless woman um, named Francesca Seovi. Like she had with Seti, Cienciuli convinced Seovi that she had organized a teaching job for her abroad and made her write letters to her friends detailing her trip. And as she had with Seti, she fed her drugged wine, killed her with an axe, baked her into tea cakes, and stole her savings. I'm not understanding how body parts or whatever would go with tea cakes. I'm not quite sure. I could understand a meat pie, maybe. Not tea cakes. That's correct. Have you ever had tea cakes? I've had coffee cake. I don't know what tea cakes are. I guess they're just tea with cake. No, it's like cake that you it's eat with tea. It's a cake with tea. It's a cake that I you don't know. I don't know. You're asking me the questions, and I don't know the answer. <laughs> I have no clue. Her third victim, however, was where she slipped up. The third victim, Virginia Siapo. I don't know if you've said any of these last <laughs> names right. <laughs> I don't know. So Siapo mm. was a noted soprano whom Sinciuli had promised a job working with an impressarier. Come on. <laughs> How do you say that, dude? I don't know. Let me see it. Impresario. Impresario? I, I don't know. In Florence. This time, however, instead of only baking her body into tea cakes and feeding them to the neighbors, Cienciuli also melted her flesh down and turned it into soap. Quote, she ended up in the pot like the other two. Her flesh was fat and white. When it had melted, I added a bottle of cologne, and after a long time on the boil, I was able to make some most acceptable creamy soap. End quote. She said in her statement, quote again, I gave bars to the neighbors and acquaintances. The cakes, too, were better. That one was really sweet. Wow. End quote. Though Cienciuli thought she had covered her tracks, she had missed something. 
Unlike her first two victims, who had little or no family, Siopo had a sister-in-law, a very nosy sister-in-law. She didn't believe Siopo's letters detailing her quick departure and had, in fact, seen her entering Sientuli's home the night she had left. Immediately, she reported the disappearance to the police, who quickly investigated Sientuli. At first, Leonardo Sienciuli defended herself, never admitting to any wrongdoing. It was only when the police openly suspected her son, one of the four children she worked so hard to protect from the world, that she admitted it was her, and that her son had nothing to do with it. Mm. Oh, oh my God. Wear a face mask. Wait a second. Oh my. I might have another one after that. Thank you. Bless you. Oh my God, dude. I need to take some allergy <coughs> medicine. The trial of CNC only lasted only for a few days. Oh my God. It's coming again. <coughs> what is going on? Don't ask me. Okay, okay, okay. She was found guilty of her crimes and granted a 33-year sentence that echoed the Romani woman's prophecy with eerie accuracy. 30 years in a prison and 3 years in a criminal asylum. Well, during her final year in the asylum in 1970, at age 79, Leonardo Cienciuli died of cerebral palsy, a type of, well, you know. Her body was returned to her family for burial. But her murder weapons included the pot that her victims were boiled in, her donated, were donated to the Criminology Museum in Rome, Italy. Ooh. And today, visitors can still see the collection of axes and peer inside the vat she used to boil human beings. I feel like somebody should have kept some of the soap, but that stuff must have gotten used up. It probably did. I mean, there should be no reason that. You know, they smelled. True. <laughs> Unless the woman stunk. Yeah, the woman. I, I really don't know how that would work out. Well, I mean, you make lysope, <coughs> excuse me, out of, like, pig fat, pig skin. I had an uncle that used to make it. Oh, well, then, it. yeah, I could understand. Yeah. It might just okay. be creamier, because, you know, pig skin's real tough. It's just creamier. Yeah. Well, okay. That was my story. Um, I hope you enjoyed, but minus the sneezing, it was and the snot drinking. I, I, no, be quiet. I can't help allergies. All right. What? We'll be right back. And we're back. We're gonna stay on the on the subjects of having female wrongdoers this time. I didn't know that. That just happened to be like that. Okay. Some children, you know, they're very conniving. They'll do a lot of stuff to get their way. Yeah. I'm sure you know that. Boy, I ain't done nothing. Some children go a little more extreme than others. And this is Marie Roberts. Mm-hmm. Dorothy Marie Roberts 
Marie was how she was known to everybody that knew her, wasn't the kind of kid that anyone would expect to get into trouble. She was smart, studious, and quiet. She learned to write in cursive by the first grade. In high school, she made good grades and played the clarinet, your oh favorite my instrument, God. and took art and dance classes. No offense to anybody that plays clarinet, but that is so boring. I don't know how they could not take offense to that if they play the clarinet. I'm sorry, the flute is too. There you go. <laughs> well, now that we're on it, I think the trombone is not the greatest, but... <laughs> <laughs> no, the trombone. Saxophone's fine. Yeah, harmonica's great. I mean, not really in a band, but... (laughs) Go with drums. Mm, That's kind of boring, too. It's not really any music to it. If you just hear a drum player playing drums with nothing else going on, But you can't have, in a band, you can't have not a drummer. Yes, actually, you can. Look at Beethoven. You always have some type (laughs) of drum beat. Mm, Not always. Moonlight Sonata. Whatever. Go ahead and go. Go ahead. Okay. Anyway... She enjoyed a very close relationship with her mother, Beth Burroughs, and her stepfather, Frank Burroughs, who had been married since Marie was four years old. Marie even called him dad. Her biological father, Stephen Robards, she only saw once or twice a month. Stephen and Beth had gotten married young and divorced after only a few years. But in the summer of 1992, things would take a dramatic turn for the worse. The weekend before her 16th birthday, she came home to find Frank with another woman. Marie was furious. However, when Marie told her mother what she caught Frank doing, her mother blamed herself rather than Frank. She worked long hours at an emergency room, she explained, and that probably had made Frank feel neglected. Marie could not understand why Beth would choose to stay with a man who cheated on her. Consequently, she became sullen, especially towards Frank. She refused to listen to him and talk back to him. Finally, she told her mother she could not stand living under the same roof as him. Beth stuck by her decision to stay with Frank and work on their marriage. She made arrangements for Marie to go live with her parents in Fort Worth, Texas, about 45 minutes away. Five days later, Marie arrived back at the Burroughs' home, begging to move back in. But Frank had instituted a strict rule against that. In order to stop the children and their blended family from moving from parent to parent whenever they didn't get their way, the rule was that once they moved out, they could never move back in. So, the decision was made for Marie to go live with her father back in Fort Worth. Stephen, for his part, was really excited to have his daughter come live with him. He often took her out to restaurants and movies. He immediately applied for a two-bedroom apartment in his complex. But in the meantime, Marie slept on a rollaway bed in the dining room. Marie, however, was not as happy with the arrangements. She was on the phone with her mother every night, long distance now. This was back in the days where we didn't have cell phones and there was actually long distance calls that cost a lot more money. Yeah, I I still don't even know how they made cell phones. How does that work? It's magic. How does this voice go through this microphone? The world. It's magic. It goes through here into the computer and now you're listening. 
Well, not yet, but now. Shut up. Actually, I'm, now that you hear it, you would be. Okay, whatever. It's magic. It is magic. Well, Marie complained that her father never cleaned the apartment and he didn't even have enough utensils in the kitchen, which I'm going to say we don't either. I no. ate with a damn no. measuring spoon this we morning. We have about one spoon. We really need to go out and get some more. Yeah, At least we really plastic do. wear. I'm like, come yeah, on. I mean, we really do. I don't know what happens to all of our utensils and what people do with them. I don't know. I don't want to know. What happened to all the forks? And spoons. Well, I can kind of explain the spoons. Yes, probably. Probably you. Yeah. What do you do with them? Well, I don't do anything what you're thinking of. I'm just saying, I don't know what you would do with spoons. The real thing, every morning that I bring a bowl of cereal into the truck with the spoon in it, it normally gets put somewhere. Oh, okay. Well. Yeah. Anyway, back to the story. She also hated her new high school, which was much bigger than her old one. At one point, she wrote her mother a letter threatening suicide. Beth just thought it was a typical teenager's overdramatic ploy to get her way. After a few months went by, Marie seemed to settle into her new life. She was making excellent grades at her new school, especially in chemistry. Then, on February 17, 1993, Stephen fell gravely ill. The two had shared a dinner of takeout Mexican food. Then, Stephen had gone to an evening church service. Oh, it tore up that stomach. Mm-hmm. They tore up that I, church I've had bathroom. that happen. <laughs> I've had that happen now. He came home early complaining of stomach cramps. And if it was me, I would say, well, just fart. You shouldn't hold in okay, a fart. continue. They kept getting worse, so at one point, Marie went to the apartment of Stephen's girlfriend, Sandra Hudgens, and told her that Stephen was really sick. Sometimes they do get really bad. Yeah. Where you kind of have to kneel down on yes, the Yes, yes. And you're like, oh, wow. Oh, mm-hmm. Feels like you're giving birth. If then you run down the like. hallway farting the whole way, <laughs> and I up. swear to God, you pooped shut your up, pants. Shut up. That was hilarious. <laughs> anyway. She stayed in Sandra's apartment with her young son while Sandra went to check on Stephen. Sandra said that when she got there, Stephen's arms and legs were stiff, and he was having a hard time swallowing. He was foaming at the mouth. Sandra dialed 911 immediately. When paramedics arrived, they tried to intubate Stephen, but his throat was closed shut. At that point, Marie came back to the apartment. Sandra said Marie just stood in the doorway frozen, probably in shock. As it became clear that Stephen was dying, Sandra hugged her, turning the teenager's face away so she wouldn't see the awful sight. The coroner would later determine Stephen's cause of death was a heart attack. Later that night, Beth and Frank arrived to take Marie back to their house. How old was he? Who's Stephen? Yeah. I'm not sure. Was he old? No. She was she was like 16. Marie. Why would he have a heart attack that Well, now, you can have a heart attack at 30, so. Okay, you can, but it's, All right. it's not likely. It's rare. At Stephen's funeral, Marie was still in shock, it seemed. Witnesses said that she stood by the grave in a daze. 
Shortly afterwards, Beth took her aside and told her that she was finally leaving Frank and that she and Marie would be moving to Florida together. Marie seemed incredulous. Quote, You had this plan all along to take me to Florida, she asked. When Beth told her yes, that she had found a job there, Marie seemed to have a hard time breathing. At the time, Beth thought it was just the shock of so many things happening at once. In Florida, the idyllic life Marie had imagined with just her and her mother did not materialize. Marie was so depressed that someday she couldn't get out of bed. Beth sent her to a counselor, but it didn't seem to do any good. Then that summer, Frank arrived on Beth and Marie's doorstep. Frank. Frank. He wanted to patch things up with Beth, promising to change and work harder on their marriage. Beth, against Marie's protest, took him back. But, in a twist that should surprise no one. Only weeks later, Marie found a note on his pillow from another woman. How are you going to have another woman leave a note on your damn pillow? That's stupid. <clears throat> Beth said Marie told her, Mom, you can put up with him if you want to, but I don't have to. I miss Texas, and I'm going home. So Beth contacted Marie's other grandparents, Stephen's father and stepmother. What's in Texas? What? That's where she's from. And arranged for Marie to go live with them back in Fort Worth. Once again in a new high school, Marie nonetheless excelled making straight A's, playing on the volleyball team and working on the yearbook staff. Even though she was quiet and reserved, her classmate Stacy High She was never high though. Stacy High. Was immediately drawn to her. An iconic name. Coming from an abusive background herself, Stacy recognized the signs that Marie was trying to hide something. So Stacy reached out to her, and before long, the two were best friends. Despite the two being nearly inseparable, Stacy could never get Marie to talk about her dad. It was the same at home with her grandparents. Marie refused to go to his gravesite and would leave the room if it was mentioned. About halfway through their senior year, Marie and Stacy were working on their English homework, reading Hamlet. Stacy recalled reading King Claudius's soliloquy in Act 3. The one that begins, Oh, my offense is rank it smells to heaven. It hath the primal eldest curse upon. A brother's murder, pray can I not. Though inclination be as sharp as will, my stronger guilt defeats my strong intent. Stacy said that upon hearing the soliloquy, Marie's face went white and her hands were trembling. Marie asked Stacy, did, did she think that people could go through life without a conscience? At that, Stacy said, she responded, well, how about the kind of person who can look somebody in the eye and kill him in cold blood? 
At that, Stacy said, Marie got up from the table where they were studying and backed up against the wall, crumpling to the floor in tears. Stacy asked Marie what was wrong, and Marie answered with a question. What was the worst thing she could think of? Stacy, a typical teenager, immediately thought Marie was pregnant. But that wasn't it. After a few guesses, Stacy jokingly asked, You didn't kill somebody, did you? Marie broke down in sobs. My father, she said. I poisoned him. She told her that she'd stolen some barium acetate from chemistry class and slipped it into her father's refried beans the night he died. Marie then swore Stacy to secrecy. Stacy, for her part, tried to keep her best friend's secret. Yeah, but refried beans tear up your stomach anyways. Now she added something else that makes it even worse. Mm-hmm. It killed him. Mm-hmm. But she began being haunted by nightmares of Marie chasing her or of Stephen calling to her from the grave. Her mental health deteriorated. She started drinking and partying way too much to try and distract herself from the guilty secret. At one point, she told her mother, but Stacy's mother thought that Marie had just made it up because she was distraught over her father's death. The few close friends she confided in said the same thing. Stacy said she had a complete mental breakdown, and she even ended up checking herself into an outpatient mental health facility. After several weeks of this torment, Stacy could not take it anymore. She finally went to the school counselor and told her to call the police about Marie. In order to corroborate Stacy's story, the Fort Worth police would have to test Stephen's blood for barium acetate. Luckily, they were able to get his preserved tissue samples just days before they were set to be destroyed. The hard part was finding a lab that had the proper equipment to test for barium acetate, which is a gas chromatograph mass spectrometer. What? Bro, you know that you don't know what that is. A machine that cost about $150,000. That's not that bad. It took them nearly four months to find a lab with the proper equipment, all the way in Pennsylvania. Then it took another several months before the results came back. In the meantime, Stacy and Marie graduated and went on to college. Marie to the University of Texas at Austin. Stacy to Sam Houston State University in Huntsville. Marie, who was studying to become a medical pathologist, paid her tuition with the $60,000 life insurance money left to her by her father. <laughs> While waiting on the lab's results, Fort Worth police did some investigating on their own. They went to the high school chemistry classroom where Marie attended while she was living with her father. Oh. There, they found barium acetate. Yeah. Yeah. They also found a safety manual with pages for each of the chemicals listing safety precautions, toxicity amounts, and what to do in case of accidental poisoning. Guess what? The page for barium acetate was missing. When the test came back showing Stephen had 28 times the lethal amount of barium acetate in his body, which is a hell of a lot, police went to Austin to arrest Marie. She, were, she, she surrendered without an incident. Once inside the station, she very quickly confessed to what she had done. When asked why, she said it was because she wanted to go 
back and live with her mom and stepfather again. But then she felt miserable then. No, she got pissed because when she went to go move back there, her mama was moving her to Florida. Yeah. Yeah. She didn't want to do that. She wanted to stay where she was in her old house. She kind of spoiled, I think. She was released on bond and using the insurance money, retained a pair of veteran defense attorneys. Their strategy was to claim that Marie didn't know the chemical would kill her father. That was the dumbest She thing had ever. only wanted to make him sick. That claim did not hold up under any scrutiny. First, Marie was an excellent chemistry student. She knew exactly how lethal barium acetate was. She had even taken the page out of the school's chemistry safety manual so she could ensure her own safety while poisoning her father with it. On top of that, if she only wanted to make her father sick, how would that help her go live with her mother? Exactly. But perhaps most damning was the fact that when her father was lying on his floor, writhing in agony, foaming at the mouth, stiff legs, arms, throat closed shut, while the paramedics tried to save him, she said nothing. On May 9th, 1996, after deliberating for only an hour, the jury came back with its verdict. Guilty of one count of first-degree murder. At her sentencing hearing, she cried, boo-hoo, and repeated how sorry she was. She was still sentenced to 27 years in prison. Behind bars, she was a model inmate, and in 2003, after serving only seven years of her sentence, she was released on parole. Are you serious? Yes. And she has since married and taken her husband's last name. Wow. Seven Four, years for Seven whole father. years. Plus got to use the damn insurance money that he left her. I know. And was for probably, the defense attorney. And was probably doing great in prison because she was a model inmate, so she probably got to watch TV and stuff. Oh, my God. <laughs> well, she only had to serve seven and years. Use, so. And use the internet and go outside and read and, and do all kind of stuff. Strangely, there are many, including Stephen's parents, who have sympathy for Marie. They see her as a good girl who just made a mistake. Oh, wow. Whatever. Despite the meticulous planning that was involved in her years of hiding her crime. She knew exactly what she wanted and how to get it. Mm -hmm. and, and then she broke down because she knew that she was in trouble like a little wee-wee. And she would do it again if she knew that she wouldn't get in trouble. If she was let off this time. Others point to her apparent regret and sorrow over her actions as proof she isn't really a cold-blooded killer. If I was her husband, do not piss her off. That's all I know. If she wants no. to do something, let her do, do not, it. Do not. Yep. Let her do whatever. I can kind of understand those perspectives. Not. I see that there are many other prisoners, especially in Texas prisons and all over the country, who are sentenced and serve way longer sentences for much lesser crimes. Oh, yeah. Definitely. But, you know... Maybe those people didn't have the big insurance funds to cover the cost of a good attorney. Exactly. Because she had, what, 60000 
Also, I can't help but wonder if Marie Robards hadn't been a pretty little white girl, would she have gotten as much sympathy and forgiveness? No. Like, if you were, uh... Okay. If you, okay, if you were a dark man, <laughs> then you ain't gonna, you, you, I mean, they're probably gonna sentence you to a lot longer. Our woman. Our woman. I don't see how she was able to use the insurance money when she was accused of murdering him. I thought the insurance wouldn't pay out for that. I don't know, but she's just a little white girl, so then they just let her off easy. Yeah. You call her a little white girl, I call her a little white bitch. Even a Mex, even, even... Hispanics people, I think, would get longer sentences. Yeah, I'm pretty well. sure. Yeah, definitely. Well, okay. Wow. We hope that you have enjoyed it, and if you are a patron member, look for a new patron-only episode coming out yeah. in the next day. Yep, pretty soon. Pretty soon. Pretty soon. Pretty soon. <laughs> I wish you could see some of the faces that I make. And I just ignore <laughs> them. <laughs> well, okay. Speaking of stomach cramps, I have a few right now, and it's time mm-hmm. to end this show. No, you show. don't know what kind of <laughs> stomach cramps I'm talking. I'm talking about bad stomach cramps. Okay. I've been Stan, and I'm always true. We'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs> My vibrator went off. <laughs> <laughs>